First John chapter two. In verse 28, it says, and now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him in his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. John's epistle makes it clear that there's more to being a Christian than just mere profession. There's more to being a Christian than just simply saying, hey, what are you? Well, I'm not Jewish and I'm not a Muslim and I'm not Hindu. I'm an American. So that must mean I'm a Christian. No. There's more to being a Christian than just mere profession. There is a moral test of obedience that we've seen or righteousness in chapter 2, verse 28, which we just read. There's a social test of love that we're going to again see in chapter 3, verse 11. And there's a doctrinal test of truth that we looked at in chapter 2, verse 21, where it says, I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it and that no lie is of the truth. These two verses that we just read serve as a bridge between two concepts in John's epistle. The first is the overarching theme of chapter 1 and chapter 2, which has been fellowship. And remember, early on we learned that fellowship means intimacy with God based on conversation. That fellowship is not the same as relationship. But now we're going to focus more on this issue of relationship or sonship. Those who are born of God. There are three important words that appear in verse 28. The first important word is the word abide. The second important word is appear. The third important word is ashamed. We are exhorted to remain in fellowship with God. Once we are born into the family of God, we become citizens in the kingdom of God. John has already said we have fellowship with the Father. We have fellowship with the Son. We have fellowship with the Father by the Son through the Holy Spirit. And in the chapter ahead, chapter 3, John is going to make the argument that the true child of God proves their spiritual birth by obedience to God's word. He's going to provide several motives for that obedience, some of which are introduced here and will be expanded later. God's wonderful love, First John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father's bestowed upon us. And in other words, he's going to sort of become overwhelmed by this concept of when you stop and you think about how God loves you and what he's done to demonstrate that love. And so 
He's going to talk about God's wonderful love in chapter 3, verse 1. Christ's promised return in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Christ's death on the cross, chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Our new nature, that nature that God has placed within us by the Holy Spirit in verses 9 through 18. And then the witness of the Spirit inside of us in, in verses 19 through 24. And so as you can imagine, we're in for some exciting Bible studies and adventures in the weeks ahead. But now we look at abiding in Christ once again in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. All Christians have to recognize the importance of abiding in Christ. New Christians are often confused when we use these strange terms. They go, well, what are, what are you talking about? Abide. It means to remain, to dwell, to live in, to make your home. In the first two chapters, the dominant theme, like I said, is fellowship and abiding. And some Christians equate abiding with, with some sort of subjective mystical union that sort of gives you Holy Spirit goosebumps that abiding is when you can sort of feel the tingle in your hair or you feel a little quiver in your liver and that's actually not what the bible is talking about abiding isn't some sort of subjective mystical union but rather the fact of revelation in other words it isn't based on the way that you feel or don't feel jesus said I will never leave you or forsake you. Now imagine the, a person comes up to you and says, I feel like God's left me and, forsake me and forsaken me. What do you say to them? Well, your feelings must be true. After all, they're a dependable measure of what's real and what's not real. Is that what you say to them? Or do you say, you know, Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So I don't mean to be disrespectful and I don't mean to in any way dis diminish your feelings even one tiny bit. But Jesus has made a promise and Jesus has never, ever, ever broken his promise. There might be reasons why you feel the way that you feel. But the problem isn't that God has left you. The absence or the presence of Jesus isn't dependent on your feeling. However, it isn't unusual for Christians to sometimes sense the presence of God or experience the presence of God or sense this overwhelming sense that God is present. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you, you thought, I'm not alone. I, there's somebody here. There's somebody here. And you may not see them. But you have this overwhelming sense of the presence of something. And so how do we abide in Christ? Do we invite Jesus over for dinner? Do we say, you know what, Jesus, I, Gino said I have to abide in Christ. So, hey, what are you doing on Friday? Do you want to go bowling? Or, or do you want to go to the Star Wars movie with me? Do you think that that's what abiding in, in Jesus is? No. Jesus said... If you abide in me and my word abide in you, you'll ask what you will and it shall be done for you. Abiding according to Jesus is you live in his presence 
and he lives in your presence. The very next verse in John 15 says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Again, remember what the disciple is. It's the disciplined learner who follows his or her Lord into the future. You know, when I was a, a little kid, my grandparents lived near this gigantic apricot orchard. And one summer, there was a gigantic wind that blew through Northern California. And one of the orchard trees, or one of the apricot trees, it had a gigantic branch that was laden with fruit and the wind literally caused the branch to disconnect from the tree and it was loaded with fruit what do you suppose happened within two or three days the branch died and the fruit went rotten earlier we sang i am nothing i am nothing i am nothing and some of you balked and says i'm something i'm not nothing i'm something but according to the Bible, apart from Christ, we really aren't anything. Jesus said that if you abide in me and my word abide in you, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That is nothing that's really worth doing. The limb was detached from the tree. It could produce no further fruit. And the fruit, once it became rotten, it became useless. And that's what happens to you. When you become disconnected from the tree, when you become disconnected from Christ, you become rotten and useless. And so we abide in Christ. Now think about this. What we've already learned, we abide in Christ when you Believe the truth. Chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. That means, remember what you heard from the beginning. It was the gospel. If you live in the gospel and the gospel lives in you, then you're going to dwell in the Father and you're going to dwell in the Son. You abide in Christ when you abide in the truth. You abide when you obey the truth. You abide when you love each other in chapter 2, verse 27. But the anointing which you received from him abides in you, that you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and isn't a lie, just as I taught you. And so, obeying the truth, loving each other, abiding in Christ. And remember last week I asked you, I invited you to ask the question of yourself, am I abiding in Christ? And you know you are if you remain in the truth. And you know that you're not if you don't remain in the truth. You know you are if you know his commandments and walk in them. You know that you are when you know his love and walk in his love. In John 15, 10, it says, Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. 
These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. In short, abiding in Christ means believing that Jesus is God's son, 1 John 4, 15, receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord, that's John chapter 1, verse 12, doing what God says, that's 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, relating in love to the community of believers, Christ's body, that's John chapter 15, verse 12. So to abide in Jesus includes fellowship in the church, with believers. But here's the problem. As you can tell. See all those empty seats over there? See all those empty seats? All those empty seats? All empty, 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 empty. Do you know why they're empty? Anybody, give a guess. No, it's because church is optional. Church is optional. We, see, here's the culture that we live in. Church is optional. Fellowship is optional. Righteousness is optional. Love is optional. Friendship and relationship in Christ is optional. Those are all optional things in our culture, in our society. And the reason why they're optional in our culture and, and society is because many people substitute what I've just said for mystical, subjective, feeling-oriented experiences. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like having a relationship and fellowship with God. I don't feel like caring about you. I don't feel like showing up. And so because we live in a, in a culture, in a society that substitutes the symbol for the substance, all of the things that are essential to Christian growth and Christian maturation and Christian existence gets left by the wayside. You see... If a person's a believer, they might say, you know, I feel dry, I feel empty, I feel lifeless, and I feel joyless. I feel distant from God. I feel distant from his presence. I feel distance from his joy. And for whatever reason, it never seems to occur to them to ask the most basic, basic questions. Do you think it's because God has neglected you? Or because you've neglected the Lord. In other words, if God feels like he's far away, who do you suppose moved? Him or you? And so it could very well be that some people have neglected the most basic things. Believing the truth. Walking in the truth. And then finding someone to love in Christ. It seems so basic. It seems so fundamental. And for the person who's been experiencing these things, they actually get offended if you ask them to repent. What do you mean repent? 
I mean, if you've disobeyed the word of God, if there's a lack of love in your life, don't you understand that, that the solution to a lack of love and the solution to disobedience is to turn from that lack of love and, and to turn from the disobedience? And that the solution is to what we already learned in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the Bible says. So to abide in Jesus means including fellowship. And the truth is you can't exercise your gifts from God by yourself. It's not even possible. Paul in writing to Timothy said in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. One way to have fellowship with God is to have fellowship in the church. In a church where God is honored, where the Bible is taught. Remember, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, the writer said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And so we pray for the church and we pray for its leaders and we get involved and we make a contribution. And I'm not talking uh, simply about a, some sort of financial contribution. I'm talking about where your life and your presence and your gifts make the difference in the dynamic of the church. So to abide in Jesus means to fellowship and it means to pray and it means to abide in the word of God and abide in the study of God's word. And that means to grow in knowledge and wisdom. And that means you owe it to yourself to do exactly that. To be a Berean, in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, we're told that the Bereans were more noble than the, Thessalonic, the Thessalonians in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. They searched the scriptures daily to see whether or not these things are so. And so it didn't just happen in the church and it just didn't happen when you walk out the door. You would go home and you would flip in your Bible and you go, you know, Gino quoted Isaiah and Jeremiah and he quoted this passage and that passage and I'm going to go home and I'm going to check it out. Jesus said in John 5, 39, to the religious leaders, search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and they are those which testify of me. Jesus made it abundantly clear that everything that the Bible has to say about what God thinks and what God wants finds its fulfillment in him. So the Bible says, abide in Jesus. I'm hoping by now, if someone says to you, what does that mean? What does it mean to abide in Jesus? That you're going to be able to answer that. That you're going to be able to say, it has to mean that I live in him and he lives in me. It has to mean that I understand what he wants and it has to mean that I'm willing to obey him. And it has to mean that not only am I willing to obey him, that I'm willing to exercise everything that he's asked me to exercise, including love and friendship and fellowship and relationship with each other.
we know that the spirit of God dwells in the believer. But we also know that Paul says, walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the desires of the lust of the flesh. But here's the point. As a Christian, you have been given all the power that you need to live an overcoming life of victory. Because you might be thinking, well, if I just went to one more Bible study or if I, if I memorized a hundred scriptures or if I did this or if I know as much about the Bible as Gino knows, none of that is going to help you as much as simply allowing the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you to empower you to do all that you need to do. And look what it says, that when he appears, appearing soon, Jesus, those in fellowship with Christ, continue in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to, to think about what's going on in the text. You're walking with Jesus, you're talking with Jesus, you're abiding with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now John says that when he appears, the point being that one day you will see him face to face in Italian, face, a face. It's when your face goes next to his face. There are at least two responses that the believer will experience at the coming of Jesus. The, there's probably a lot of different experiences, but I'm going to narrow it down to two broad categories. Joy and terror. Joy for the person who anticipates it. Terror for the person who thought this is way too soon. Those who abide in Christ approach Jesus with joy, with faith, with boldness. They know their relationship and fellowship they remain secure in that relationship and fellowship. Why? Because they confess Jesus as Lord in Christ in verse 22. They abide in him in, in verse 24, in verses 27 and 28. And because they know Jesus as Lord, because they abide in him, they have no reason whatsoever to fear his judgment. Not all Bible teachers agree on the details. Look what it says. And when he appears, some Bible teachers will say, look, there are three broad categories that, that's called premillennialism and, and, and postmillennialism and amillennialism. And you don't need to know all of the details at this particular moment. But here's my point. All biblical teachers, regardless of who they are, if you embrace historical biblical Christianity, everyone believes that Jesus will return personally, that he will come physically, bodily, literally. Do you know how we know that? Turn back in your Bibles just very quickly because I don't want to belabor the point in Acts chapter 1 verse 11. 
I've quoted this scripture to you many, many times. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, you'll remember in verse 10, it says, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, Jesus goes up into the sky. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Verse 11, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, the one who physically, bodily, literally rose up, who was taken up, up, not down, from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven physically, personally, literally, bodily. So, by the way, this is the first mention of Christ's appearing in the little epistle of 1 John. The coming of Jesus, the, the appearing of Jesus is supposed to serve as a motive. Now, I, I want you to understand the context again. The context isn't to correct theological mistakes concerning the coming of Jesus. The purpose and the point here in mentioning the appearing of Jesus is to serve as a motive for loving him and obeying him and abiding in him. The prophetic books like Daniel and Revelation deal with the details of his coming. And I've gone over this through the whole book of Revelation and, and through all of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Not all Bible teachers agree, like I said, on the details. But everyone agrees on what I just said. Billy Graham wrote, Many times when I go to bed at night, I think to myself that before I awake, Christ may come. He's 97 years old. Can you imagine? Is that what you think? You think it could quite possibly happen that between the time when I close my eyes and open my eyes, I might be in heaven. John Wesley White, who is a close friend of Billy Graham, told Skip Heitzig and I, the coming of Jesus Christ and the end of the age occupies some 1,845 scriptural verses that go stretch from Genesis to Revelation. I don't know that that's true. I didn't look up all 1,845 verses, but however you add it up, I did look up the fact that the second coming of Jesus is mentioned specifically, not alluded to, but specifically 318 times in 260 chapters of the New Testament. It's mentioned in every one of the New Testament books with the exception of Galatians, which deals with specific doctrinal issues, and then the micro-mini books of 2nd John and 3rd John and Philemon. Here it's not mentioned again in order to establish the doctrine of the second coming, but to promote in the context a reason to live your life in such a way that he could come at any moment. Vance Havner wrote, quote, we're not just looking for something to happen. We're looking for someone to come. And when these things begin to come to pass, 
We're to drop our, we are to drop our heads in discouragement or shake our heads in despair, but rather lift our heads in delight. We're not to get bummed out. We're to all of a sudden become excited. In the early church, the knowledge of the coming of Jesus for the saints is what kept them from despair. The expectation of the coming of Jesus served as sustenance, particularly in the midst of unremitting, unyielding, unending persecution. The expectation motivated the saints to holy living and selfless evangelism. We sang it, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. It's interesting to me, the second century church saw the the eagerly awaiting of Christ's return as the motivation to evangelize first Syria, then Armenia, and then they made their way up to Pontus. They went to Macedon, down to Corinth. They made their way to Rome. They pushed ever westward till they came to the Iberian Peninsula. The whole Roman Empire started to become surrounded as they went south to Egypt and then all the way to North Africa. If you were to take the United States and you were to imagine in your mind that here is is Washington, Oregon, and California. And then on the other end, you have Maine, and you have New York, and you have the the eastern seaboard, and you go all the way down to Florida, and you wrap around to New Orleans, all the way through New Mexico, Texas, if you will, and, and Arizona, and back to California. If you were to take all of the United States of America and then put the Mediterranean Ocean over the top of our country... It would swallow up the middle of the country and the rims would make the outskirts of the Roman Empire. That's how far they went. And that's who they reached all within the matter of just two generations. Do you know why? Because they were abiding in Christ and they were looking. They were looking for his appearing. After, in later centuries, Bible reading was all but lost. People stopped reading the Bible. They stopped reading the Bible. And then all of a sudden, centuries later, with the invention of the printing press and the Protestant Reformation, all of a sudden people started thinking again and reading again and reading their Bible again and reading the promises again and in the 15th century and then in the 16th century and in the 17th century there were multiple great awakenings and then evangelism took off all over again. Only one doctrine is mentioned more in the New Testament than the appearing of Jesus. Do you know what that doctrine is? It's the doctrine of salvation. Look what it says. I'll read it again. And now little children abide in him. And when he appears. At this point in our Bible study, I want you to pause. And I want you to talk to the text. And ask it a question. What exactly is going to happen when Jesus shows up. 
It says when he appears. Aren't you even remotely interested in what's going to happen? I mean, it's one thing to say he's going to show up. It's another thing to say, what's he going to do once he shows up? Don't you remember when you were a kid, maybe some of you, when your mother or your grandmother or whoever it was said to you, wait till your dad comes home. He's going to be coming soon. Daddy is coming soon. And what's he going to do when he shows up? Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Matter of fact, it would probably do you well to turn there. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay that, that, than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day. This is the day of his appearing. For the day will declare it. What's going to happen when he shows up? For the day will declare it. What will it declare? It will declare everything of who you are and what you've done because it will be revealed by fire, according to Paul, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet as through fire, unquote, what Paul is basically saying is Jesus is going to show up and there's going to be a test and the test is everything that you've said everything that you've done it's everything every moment of every day every thought everything and it says, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he's going to receive reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss. In other words, I think you understand what it means. It means life can be divided into two broad categories. Things that have value and things that have no value. Things that have temporal value and, and things that, you, that have eternal value the local church is compared to a building in the passage a temple and i want you to think this through the pastor is the builder who maintains the qualities of the materials in the building paul was the builder that god used to lay the foundation in corinth and the foundation was the gospel and here's what paul says it was the gospel that i preached it was the gospel of the christ that i preached it was the salvation message that i preached how you could experience his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his hope if you'll receive him and walk in him each one was supposed to be careful because Paul was warning them. He was basically saying to them, please don't tell them something that I didn't tell them. They were to be wise and they were supposed to be careful builders. By the way, after Paul came Apollos and then after Apollos came other pastors. Each was supposed to take good care. The point seems to be that both would be tested. 
And this is the good news and the bad news. It doesn't simply mean that you'll be tested. It also means that I'll be tested. Jesus will come. And Jesus will test me. And Jesus will say, did you tell them what I told you to tell them? Did you encourage them the way I told you to encourage them? Did you love them the way I told you to love them? The reason why this becomes such an important thing, at least to me, is that believers will be rewarded for their faithfulness and service to him. The pastor will be rewarded in faithfulness or not rewarded. Lose the reward. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, it says, we are to look forward to his appearing. When it says we're to look forward to his appearing, the word means patiently waiting, looking in anticipation. The word picture is a child on their tiptoes. This is what's really great about having nine grandkids around you for the last week. You know, you have... You have the, 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 the 14 month old and the 16 month old and you have the two year old and the three year old and you have the toddlers and, and you have the people peeking over the, 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 the table and they get on their toes and you can see their little eyes and you can see their little nose as they're anticipating they're looking they're looking they're, they're looking with anticipation that's the word picture that the writer of Hebrews goes, are you on your toes? Are you looking for Jesus? Are you looking for him because you love him? You love his appearing. And the Bible speaks of the loving his, uh, his appearance. Paul writes, henceforth there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous ju judge, shall give to me in that day. And not me only, but everyone who loves his appearing. I think that there's a difference between loving the Lord and loving his appearance. We look, we love, we live. Again, Paul told Titus that we should be living and looking for the glorious Lord teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts that we should live soberly, righteously, godly, he says, in this present world, looking for the blessed hope. This is a reference to the coming of Jesus and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus. And that's the context when he says, ashamed in his present look that we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him and his coming. All Christians are accepted in the beloved. We may have confidence and not be ashamed. Question, does that mean some Christians are accepted and some Christians are rejected? No, that's not what it means. According to Ephesians chapter 1, every single born-again Bible-believing Christian is accepted in the beloved. All Christians are accepted but not all Christians are acceptable. Do you understand the difference? Let me see if I can explain. My grandchildren and children are outside playing in the snow. They're having a blast. They get covered with dirt 
and snow and grime and filth and they're just wet and covered with dirt. They come into the house drenched, soaked. And I say, you're not going to come in here like that. Question, do I love my children or my grandchildren? Yes. Does God love you? Yes. Are there certain things that God will allow and won't allow? Yes. So do I send my grandchildren and children to the neighbors with their birth certificates and all of their records, and I say, we're done here. You are no longer my children. No, I ask them to just simply take the dirty laundry and keep it in the laundry room. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.9, therefore we also have our ambition to be pleasing to him. And so what John is saying and what Paul is saying is that when you get soaked and when you get drenched and when you are covered with dirt, sometimes you have to take that off in an appropriate place and then you have to put on what's going to be appropriate for where you belong. The Christian who fails to walk in love, the Christian who fails to walk in obedience, the Christian who fails to walk in the truth, the Christian who fails to, to not grow, the Christian who sustains unrepentant disobedience, lovelessness, and lies, they're going to lose their reward. And they're going to be ashamed at his appearing. And by the way, all Christians are going to appear before Jesus at his appearing at the judgment seat of Christ. And so when it says that we may have confidence, I want you to look closely, quickly at that word confidence. It means openness, freedom of speech, no sense of restraint. That we may have confidence, open, freedom, no sense of restraint. It means to be so close in friendship and fellowship with Jesus that when Jesus shows up, you don't panic in his presence. One passage, one translation says, shall not shrink in shame from him. But I'm saddened that some Christians will shrink in shame because they're living a shameful life. Jesus will catch us red-handed in those things which we ought not to be doing. Because we're living a shameful life. And I think that it's going to be tragic. When Jesus shows up. And you're not at your best. You're at your worst. You know I read a strange. Thing this week. About Dwight Eisenhower. Many of you know that he was the president of the United States. Does anybody remember when? 1956 to 1960, he was the president before John F. Kennedy. He was, of course, the, one of the commanding generals in World War II. But did you know that Dwight Eisenhower would often vacation in Denver during his presidency? 
And there was a story that in the city there was a six-year-old boy who was dying of cancer. And this little boy expressed his interest to see the president. And one Sunday morning, President Eisenhower drove over to his house with his presidential limousine and his entourage. And he walked up to the front door and he knocked on the door. And there was his father, the boy's father. Hair uncombed, a day's growth on his beard. He was wearing Levi's and a t-shirt, by the way, in 1956. That's what everybody basically wore. And he saw the president, and he was speechless. And the president took the little boy by the hand, and he talked to the little boy, and he comforted the little boy, and he took him out, and he took him for a ride in the limousine, and he talked with him, and he shook his hand, and he left. And for days afterward, the man would speak about how embarrassing and humiliating it was to meet the president. He was so ashamed that he didn't meet him at his best, but he met him at his worst. You might be thinking, I don't care. If I just get to meet him, I'll be happy. But I want you to think about it. The Christian, the Christian isn't encouraged to continue to make excuses. The Christian is encouraged to look for him, to love him, to love each other. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, if he looks back, he sees Calvary where Jesus died for him. If he looks within, he sees the Holy Spirit who lives inside and teaches him. If he looks around, he sees his Christian family whom he loves, but he also sees a world that's desperate in sin. And he sees a world that's desperate for your godly witness. In other words, he sees a world where people need to know, is there such a thing as hope, forgiveness, and life? And then if he looks ahead, he sees the return of Jesus. And look what it says in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. The word if, by the way, in the original language where it says, if you know that he is righteous, the word if is sometimes thought of as a conditional clause, but it could be translated and more properly should be translated since you know that he is righteous. I want you to think about that for just a moment. The reason why I want you to think about it is this. Do believers know that God is righteous? Yes. Is, simple question. Is God righteous, yes or no? Is God good, yes or no? You know that, that's what he's saying. You know that God is righteous. You know that God is good. Now, I want you to think this through. John's logic is unfailing. God is incapable of unrighteousness. Since God is righteous, all that God does is righteous. True or false? It's got to be true. The moment he does it, that makes it righteous. 
Therefore, here's John's logic. Therefore, whoever is born of him, righteous or unrighteous, they're righteous. That's exactly right. Now you're starting to get it. Here's what John is saying. Do you know Jesus? Have you been born again? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Guess what? Everything that God did in you in Christ is something that is good and right and helpful. Being righteous is a twofold condition. We are righteous before God because we've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit and because of the sacrifice of Jesus. We are righteous before the world when we act in the power of the Spirit, when we reflect the character of Christ. In other words, when we begin to act like Jesus, even more simply, we are righteous in the world's eyes when we act like Jesus. A.W. Tozer wrote, quote, everything in the universe is good to the degree that it conforms to the nature of God and evil as it fails to do so. Even Mahatma Gandhi said, quote, I would suggest first that all of you Christians begin to live more like Jesus Christ. Mahatma Gandhi said that in the context when he was approached by E. Stanley Jones. Stanley Jones asked Mahatma Gandhi the question, what would it take for Christianity to be more accepted in India? Gandhi's response, for Christians to sort of behave like Jesus. Do you think that Christianity would be more accepted in our culture and society if Christians actually acted like Christians? I think that that's right. John has written about light and darkness and he's written about love and hatred and he's written about truth and error. And now he sums up all of Christian living in the single phrase, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices Righteousness. Not simply people who talk the talk, but who walk the walk. Christians talk and walk. Here's John's position. You are not only talking the talk, but you're walking the walk when you live in obedience, when you live in love. When you live in truth, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. That means that love isn't an excuse to sin. Love doesn't justify sin. We can't call evil good and good evil. That's the culture's declaration of independence from God. The popular culture despises marriage and virtue, purity, and life. By the way, it's not weird or prudish to honor your marriage vows. Promiscuity and sexual immorality hold out an invitation of freedom, but what it really brings, what it really offers, what it really provides is bondage of the soul. The things that denigrate God, that glorify violence, that celebrate sin, these are the things that will eat away at the heart and soul of individuals. Spurgeon said, quote, 
A Christian should be a striking likeness of Jesus Christ. We should be pictures of Christ. Oh, my brethren, there's nothing that can so advantage you, nothing that can so prosper you, so assist you, so make you walk toward heaven rapidly as to keep your head upwards towards the sky and your eyes radiant with glory like the imitation of Jesus Christ, unquote. That's exactly right. So how do you abide in Christ? You obey him. You love him. You walk with him. You trust him. Why? Because righteousness promotes confidence. And then what? Righteousness which promotes confidence means that you're confident at his appearing. What does that mean? That you're not ashamed. What does that mean? That you get to live your life in joy and anticipation. Because we're moving this transition from fellowship to sonship or or relationship. John is going to be overcome with emotion as he considers all that it means to be a child of God. And that's what we're going to talk about the next time we meet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we abide in you in the upcoming year, that we can with joy look for Long for, love your appearing. Lord, we pray that we would be sufficiently motivated. That it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to be involved with things. That are going to make us ashamed. When you show up. Because we have every reason to believe that that's exactly what's going to happen. That you're going to show up. The signs are all there. Signs in the sky. Signs in society. Signs in technology. We're rapidly coming to the final chapter in this thing called the church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.